So you do have a new book, right? No. It's the it's it's same one. Is no. it? Yeah. Okay. I have a picture of you reading it. Do you? <laughs> I totally do. <laughs> you were only pretending to read, Don. Don't worry about it. Remember that was that set shot you did? That yes, time? I think you're right. I think you might be. No, it's not because you were asking questions about it from parts that I hadn't read yet. Like you. Oh, were... that's right. I did. Yeah. Oh my God, I did read the book. <laughs> yes, you did. Well, made a real impression, didn't it? <laughs> uh, no, it was an awesome book. This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics for you, but I feel like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist friend. So our last podcast, if I recall, and I was just telling Kevin that I meant to listen to it again before this so that I could focus in on the conversation that ended with us saying, oh, let's just get Maureen. <laughs> um, but it started, I, I felt like what happened last time we talked is we kept, Don and I kept trading places between one of us saying, you can't talk to, you just can't have these conversations. It's too hard and it's pointless. Mm. And the other one saying, oh, the, you know, it's, there's some important conversations to have, but we, we traded off. Like, who was saying which a couple times. It oh, felt I see. I see what you're saying. Are you with because me? Because it was like, we know what the right thing to do is. But then in your heart, you're like, screw those people. I don't need those people. <laughs> no, I don't even They're know. They're uh, Yeah. <laughs> I don't think... Like, in my mind, it's not even, like, the right thing to do. Although I do think, in particular, white people have more responsibility to talk to their people, like, to have these conversations. But I don't know that... I don't know that asking people to deliberately go into a conversation that is going to hurt them is reasonable. I'll tell you why I have... To, I struggle with it, because for me to survive... I think I have to, and for me to go to places that I need to go to, I, I have to say to myself, I don't care what these people think. Before yeah. I go into a Walmart or go into a gas station that I have to go into, because it's the last place, I have to say to myself, look, I'm a grown ass man. This is my country too. I don't give a damn if they don't like me. I got to get some gas and some Twinkies. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I'm dealing with. So to throttle back and actually care about what people think, it's, it's, it's a little hard. I'm taking down defenses that I've grown up with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I get that. I get that. So when I talk about uh, empathy, the first thing I'm talking about is kind of tuning into myself and know what knowing what my uh, limits are. So I don't know if you remember this scene, but after uh, the George Floyd killing, 
there were some teenage girls out with signs protesting. And then there was this huge, bulked up, beefy, tattooed man who was screaming at them. And I'm imagining spewing invectives and calling them names or whatever. But he was like, how dare you protest the fact that, you know, this guy was murdered in the street. And mm -hmm. uh, so I look at something like that and say, what is my role there? My role is not to talk to him because I know what my limits are. Mm -hmm. We have this way of talking about empathy like, oh, unconditional positive regard. And boy, don't we all want to be able to do that. And no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to really be able to do that. And I know it's not what I do. And the way I think about it is that sometimes people are so addicted to whatever toxin they're on mm -hmm. that they need detoxing. And that's not my job. I used to work in addiction recovery, but I never did detox. So when it comes to racism in this country, I think people are addicted to white supremacy. Mm. And we yeah. saw that over 70 million people are still. And that is sobering. You know, when I think about, I can walk out into the street right now and out there somewhere, there are over 70 million people who think that it was okay to kill, just kill unarmed black people, who think it's okay to put children in cages. But mostly the, the um, guy in the White House ran off cruelty and white supremacy, white nationalism, mm -hmm. racism. And over 70 million people said that was okay. So where I am, you know, Don, when you talk about defenses, it's like, okay, those are people who just hate me for existing. They don't know me. Yeah. If you know me, I can give you a reason to hate me, but <laughs> just on general principle. Yeah. And so that is something that's pretty tough to take. I And I, I have a hard time with that. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that when people, you know, when they are so adrenalized or when they are so mm -hmm. addicted to needing to feel that level of supremacy, their brains aren't online for a conversation yeah. anyway. Yeah, and we did talk about that last week. We talked about America being a giant toddler. <laughs> that yeah. isn't like in a place where it can hear these are the rules for eating out. It's more right. like try to keep it from poking right. someone in the eye. Or right, right. So part of what we're going to hear is that, oh, this is a deeply divided country. Uh, oh, we need to like have unity. And it's like, you know, a lot of times when people say unity, they are talking about that easy empathy, the kind of empathy where you're supposed to all hold hands and, and say you get along until, you know, you don't mm -hmm. or until you are no longer in public and have to pretend to get along. The thing is, sometimes pretending to get along is enough because all you want is the gas and the Twinkies. And so you can just pretend to get along and get it and leave. Um, but, and so, I, I, you know, everything isn't worth a deep conversation. But I do think if you're in a relationship with someone and where the hope is for intimacy and increasing intimacy, then that's where I think the disruptive empathy comes along. And that's where I think you do have to I put the two words together because you kind of have to give up some of the narrative you have about yourself in order to like go where the relationship takes you, in order to go where the conversation takes you. When that happens, you know, then that's when I think you are probably moving more toward authenticity. 
But I certainly don't think it's something that you just wade into saying, hey, I got to have a deep, authentic engagement with everybody I meet and I can save people and I can get everybody to this point that we're going to like each other. I think the good news about disruptive empathy is you don't have to pretend to like people. <laughs> hmm. Say as a clinician. Now, I may be the only one out here, but I've on occasion had to work with people I didn't like. And if I had to pretend that I'm feeling their pain and that I am, uh, you know, that's just, I don't think that's doing either of us any good. But if I can tune in and be aware of how I have this image of myself that I'm trying to hold on to and some of the worst mistakes I've ever made in my life, I've made trying to hold on to an image of myself, you know, as a, as a clinician, if I'm trying to hold on to that image, then I am not going to allow myself the curiosity to maybe ask the kinds of questions that I need to if I'm being responsible to you as a clinician. I wrote about that in my book because I think I told the, uh, the story about a young woman I worked with who just came out and said something about Mexicans and niggas. Yeah. I was like hell-bent on showing that I was like unflappable and that I was the kind of therapist who could sit there and kind of like, and how does that make you feel? You know, I could, uh -huh. I could just sort of stay with her and kind of stay with the thing, you know, about her trauma and maybe she's trying to push me away so we didn't get to, I had a head full of interpretations. But what I did not do is I did not allow myself to be real with her. I just sort of held on to that image of myself that made me feel strong and made me feel as if I had more power in the relationship and could, you know, kind of keep the show going. And a part of what we've, you know, talked about over and over in RCT is as long as you're holding on to an image, you really are not moving into relationship. And I didn't find out as much as I could have found out until we were actually terminating that relationship. You know, I think it. I think the relationship ultimately went okay. Could have been so much better if I had had the courage to kind of let go of my um, unflappable, all-knowing, I'm always available and have unconditional positive regard kind mm -hmm. of image I was trying to keep of myself because she invited me into a conflict. If I'd had more yeah, courage, yeah. I would have gone right there. I would have gone in with her, and I didn't. Hmm. been mentioned a couple times, and I would love to explore it a little more. The unconditional positive regard mm -hmm. is something that's used in um, some groups. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well, if you're going to be a part of our group, one of our agreements is unconditional positive regard. Can you tell us what that, tell us normal people um, <laughs> that have Southern Indiana uh, uh, education, could you tell us what that means? Well, like everything else, I can understand it better in relationship to little kids, right? Like when little Don wants to ride the truck that little Kevin is riding and Don goes up and hits Kevin on the head with a shovel, then... Um, I'll never do that to you, Kevin. <laughs> then, then I, or I guess it's assuming positive intent is another way of saying it. It's, I'm assuming that Don had... You know, he had a need. He wanted to ride the truck. I'm waiting on the positive intent. He didn't have the skills, Maureen, to okay. ask for it. And so I say, Don, 
Well, first I say, Kevin, ow, jeez. Then <laughs> I make sure Kevin's head stops bleeding. And then I say to Don, hey, you really want to ride that truck. Yeah? Oh, my God. When really? you really want to ride that truck, you say, when you're done, can I have a turn? Oh, my gosh. You know what? My, my, my brother-in-law and his wife, they did that with their kids. The kid would keep hitting them. They'd say, no, thank you. No, thank no, thank you. And I just thought that is the most idiotic thing I've ever. <laughs> I'm sorry. 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 It's not. I want to I want to be really clear here because I do have issues with it and I would like to dissect it a little bit. But it is not saying no, thank you when someone hits you on the head with a shovel. It's it's trying to teach the skills so the person stops hitting you on the head with a shovel. So when our oldest hit us, which in toddlerhood was quite frequent, like it was trial by fire, our, 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 our parenting journey. And, <laughs> and <laughs> one of the things that we had to learn how to do was how to move her from the situation so that she wouldn't hurt people. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it would be someone's job, Don, if you're hitting people with a shovel, to move you from the situation so that you stop hurting people. The assuming positive intent simply means that I'm not approaching you thinking you're some kind of a evil child that is always going to hit people on the head with a shovel when you want something, but rather you are a child who has not yet developed the skills of patience <laughs> and perspective taking and impulse control, right? And so I'm going to help you learn those skills while keeping Kevin safe. But with adults, when that happens, and there's a group and you're saying, okay, in this group, we assume positive intent, then that means if I say something racist and I'm in this group, how do you call me out? Okay. So and, that, and that's my question. And like, how, how do we stay authentic when we're assuming positive intent? Okay, I so I think that's what, that's what made me mad. I don't think I... I, I don't know if I explained this to you. I was, we were watching, and it may, it may actually have been Van Jones that actually said it. After the election, they, it, it was brought up, hey, you know, there's 72 million people out there that are crying right now, and we need to know why they're crying. Like, yes, there's people out in the streets, and they're celebrating and all this other stuff, but then there's 72, like, like what, like, we need to find out why they're hurting. And mm -hmm. at the time I just was like, no, like <laughs> these are people that hate that are their cult is based off of hating others that do not look like them and do not sound like, how do I cope with that? How do I meet them halfway? I'm tired of meeting them halfway or trying to meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We're treating them like kids like those children right. who who and, and we've got to stop that these are adults it's they're grown-ass adults they're grown-ass yeah thank you i don't know am i am, are we are we are we talking about the same we, i think we are yeah and that's that's what i want to know because i have seen powerful conversations happen marianne macklin who's been on the show she gave a sermon probably three years and 11 months ago, <laughs> like, we, you know, shortly after the 2016 election. And she told a story of sitting with someone on an airplane that was, you know, one of those people who's really sad right now and being curious. 
about that person and like trying to find, I, I shouldn't be telling her story, but, but it's a, it's a very moving story about softening herself toward this other person and understanding her in a way that moved Marianne. Like she was moved. And I think this other woman was moved too. And I don't know if down the line, maybe that woman left and then started thinking about things and maybe questioning some of the deeply held beliefs that she had. But I guess what I'm saying is there are people that I admire and love who have done this in a way that is really powerful. And I think it's important to note that Marianne's white and was talking to a white woman and that there's that piece of it, which makes me feel like it's a very different story to ask me to try to understand what's going on and to go talk to people than it is someone who's black because I look very non-threatening <laughs> to them. Right? Mm -hmm. Could be. It could be. I'm going to stop talking I mean, for a little bit. No, no, no. I, I'm thinking sometimes that those are really hard conversations. First of all, yes, I think it's possible to do that. And what you call positive intent, it's, that's all I really mean when I say respect. Okay. Uh, and the kind, enough respect to allow curiosity. But at the same time, I also know that uh, sometimes... Sometimes my purpose is to understand, just to hear, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes my purpose is simply to state limits. Yeah. And I think we have to have, I think we just have to know what the purpose is. Now, if I am in a professional relationship with someone, mm -hmm. how I might respond is maybe a little bit differently than when I can just get up and leave the, mm -hmm. the Thanksgiving table. I just don't have to have a conversation with you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think I and I need to know when I need to make those choices, because I think to believe that every time uh, something comes up, then we have to be on and we have yeah. to be ready. It's like that is draining. Yeah. And if you are black indigenous person of color, more more times than not, you're interacting cross racially. And that is really, really tiring. And particularly when the notion is that it is your job to sort of bring people along. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, yeah. this country. And I think that's the other thing that's hard. I mean, I have, you know, my husband's wife. So, you know, I have white family members. One of the things that gets that I'm aware of now is that, you know, anyone who I didn't have any excuses for anybody who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. It was like he told you who he was and you voted for him. Mm -hmm. I have even fewer excuses now because there is absolutely no way that you can say, well, well, why? I mean, his economic policy, he doesn't know any. His, you know, international leadership, no, doesn't do that either. Compassionate leadership, no, doesn't do that either. You know, economy going well, no. You know, he ran on white supremacy. And if you voted for him, you're saying that's okay. So I don't have a lot of patience now, and I should say I have zero patience. We're trying to tell people, you know, but don't you think that, you know, that's a little bit wrong? Now, what I will say is that I think people feel that because they have been taught that the only way they can matter is to be white. And that that is the status. If they have nothing else, they can hold on to that. And in this country, I mean, that's what the country was built on. And I often say to people to act as if we are broken and divided, 
is just uh, to say that, you know, this country is broken. That's a misnomer. This country is working the way it was meant to work. Mm-hmm. From yeah. the day, you know, from the very, very beginning, it was meant to establish white supremacy, to steal native lands, and to keep black people on, and you know, anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. And any immigrants who come into this country, they have to figure that out. It's like, well, if you can't be white, you surely have to avoid trying to be black. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter what you look like, you can look black, but you can, you still need to like kind of dissociate yourself from African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So that's a very tiring position to be in. I think all of us are just kind of called to know what is it that we're able to do at a given time. Where I am right now is when I see people who I think are just in the throes of their addiction to mm. white supremacy, mm. it's like, okay, I don't do detox. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I, if I get put in a situation where I must, then I will give it my best shot simply to say, okay, let's figure out, let me get curious about how, how you came to be this way. Maybe that's where compassion comes in, knowing that all of us have these images of ourselves and who we want to be in the world and the kind of person we are. But those images are multi-layered, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I may have this image of myself as someone who is capable of having all of these, quote, deeply engaging, authentic conversations, which is often true much of the time until it's not. <laughs> and I, and, and I kind of need to know what it's not and, and, and know that, okay, that's not my role here. Or maybe my role is to come back. We have this habit in this country when something happens that I need to be able to respond right now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can't. Anti-black racism is so pervasive. I mean, we know it's everywhere, but it's still that still doesn't mean we don't get blindsided by it. So when we're blindsided by something, we might lose our words. We may not even have words to talk. Mm-hmm. It's like, did that even happen? So it may be a few days, few hours before we come back and say, you know, I want to I want to talk about that with you. But I think we, you know, again, we can give ourselves permission to do that if it's someone who's in a position to talk. Now, the big beefy guy that's yelling and spewing and showing up at state capitals with guns, those aren't people I'm going to try to talk to. Right, you right. Know, it's hard, even if you've got the right words, mm-hmm. the fact that they've wrapped white supremacy, first they, they wrap it in law and order, right? Mm-hmm. That's hard to fight law and order, what's, what's supposed to be good, and, you know, you know, it's a battle mm-hmm. between good and bad. So all of a sudden law and order is, you know, that's that's good. Right. And so you you battle that. Then if that doesn't work, then it's also patriotism. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love of country. So it's wrapped up in patriotism. And on top of that, if that doesn't work. Christianity and Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, oh, it is, it is, it is, uh, it is an American, right? Yeah. And you can't beat it. So these people are, they, they are convinced that they are on the side of law and order, of America and uh, the bald eagle, and then Jesus <laughs> Christ himself, <laughs> and Don't it's you think it's funny? Don't you think it's funny that the evangelicals talk about Jesus Christ when Trump doesn't know the back of the Bible from the front? It's crazy. It's like, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> but now I, that's where I think all of us have work to do. 
I do think we, because I think we do have to realize how we get silenced. And so uh, when Lee Atwater, he, he, he repented of this before he died at a very young age, but when he was advising the Nixon administration, he was saying there was a time when you could say nigga, 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 you can't do that anymore. You have to talk mm. about states' rights. Mm -hmm. You have to like code it in other language. And so law and order and states' rights. And when someone said, I go, well, what, what is that right? The states want it so bad. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? Law and order. Slavery was legal. Uh, one of the ways that you perpetuate these kinds of caste systems and, you know, white supremacy being one is by talking about it without talking about it, using language to like obscure reality. And I think a part of what we have to do is like, what are the ways we get silenced if we choose to be in a conversation? One is people are gonna use coded language. So you might have to break some codes sometimes or invite people mm -hmm. to break some codes. I, I was talking to some person, some student once and they were talking about rap music and well, you know, I don't see why we can't say nigga if, you know, they say nigga. And it's like, okay, well, black people say nigga. And it's like, well, let's talk about all the other things about black people you want to emulate. <laughs> you know, the coded language we have to, we also have to look at the false equivalences. You know, they'll try and say, well, this is the same as that. No, it's, you mm -hmm. know, like whenever that happens, those are the things I think we actually have to do. So mm -hmm. uh, we, Bill and I have this young uh, nephew who was talking to a coach of his whom he used to respect. And he was talking about the uh, George Floyd murder. And that coach said, but can you say, can you say 100% that it was racism? And I said, had you thought about asking what percentage is permissible? If mm -hmm. it's 87% racism, is that fine? It was fine to just squeeze the life out of him on, cap, you know, on camera while he's evacuating his bowels. I think we are responsible for trying to figure out what are the ways people try to silence us so that when we choose to talk, we have ways of responding. Mm -hmm. And we don't feel you know, so always caught off guard. Keep in mm -hmm. mind that was his coach. It wasn't yes. like an equal conversation. They were not equals at the time. This no. was his Coach, coach telling him yeah how do you argue with your coach <laughs> you know you know what i'm saying uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. maybe you say no thank you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> man it just makes you mad makes you want to scream in your head makes you want to holler <laughs> makes you want to holler man. yeah yeah Man. Uh, but I'm really interested now in the young people like our nephew who are talking uh -huh. to coaches. I grew up in an era where people put their racism on signs and said, don't come in here and you knew not to go in. Mm -hmm. Right. So young people are living in a world uh, where they are, you know, everybody's doing everything together. You know, you play sports together, you sleep together, you do everything. And it's confusing because then it sort of looks like, oh, we are in a post-racial world. Well, no, we aren't. Because mm -hmm. we're still in the world where the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence. And one of the things, if you keep reading the grievances, one of the things they were so angry about is that King George had the nerve to think that they shouldn't be able to steal the land west of the Mississippi 
and they were talking all this freedom talk and made slaves get the idea that maybe they should be free. You know, the Naturalization Act that said, well, the only people who can be, talk about patriotism, Don, the only people who can be Americans are free white people. It's the same country. All of this is just continuous. It's just showing up in different forms in different generations. The big challenge in front of younger generations now is how to address something that really is so squishy and it's just mm -hmm. as real, hurts as hard, and maybe more because there's no way to name it. One thing, at least, that I see that happens here are people saying, well, I'm not, like, really frequently here is, I'm not racist, I have a Black grandchild. Right. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. yeah. Or what's the favorite is, you know, when someone says, I'm not racist, but... <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know what's coming, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we thought because of the browning of America, because it's still browning. Let's be it, it is browning mm -hmm. um, that racism would end. That some of these some of these folks, but you know, if you look through it throughout history, I mean, you look in New Orleans, right? I mean that that was uh, that was a, a melting pot, and that didn't stop racism, right? right? We breathe the air of, and actually we all breathe the air of anti-Black racism. It's what the country was founded on, and it is still there. I um, had a, an opportunity to talk to a class, I think it was earlier this week. I don't, COVID, I don't know which week or day we are most of the time. <laughs> Who knows what uh, day it is? <laughs> nobody knows. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I had run across some notes. It's, I think it's called Notes on the State of Virginia. And you'll see things like about the, the difference in the hue and the color, and does it come from the blood or some secretion? Uh, uh, is it in the skin or underneath the skin? But it doesn't really matter because beauty is something that we pay attention to when we're domesticating horses, pigs, and dogs. So why not human beings? Of course it matters. And then it goes on to talk about, there was some line about an orangutan preferring uh, that blacks prefer whites just as orangutans prefer them to their own kind. There was another little passage in those notes that talked about blacks needing less sleep, but they tend to sleep a lot, especially if they aren't working, and that they're pretty good with memory, but not so great with reason. And, oh, by the way, it's okay to sell their children because their griefs are transient. Wow. That was written by Thomas Jefferson. You can find it. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the the numbers for, for Trump, he had more black people vote for him this time around. He had more gay and lesbian folks vote for him than this time around. He had, you understand what, he had more Latinos vote for him. White supremacy is not just a white thing. It's, a, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's in all of us. When I was at Hampton, in Virginia, historically African-American school. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine who was from Bloomington who, all, who also was going there. She was a year older than me. And she would sit at this table with all her friends. Every once in a while, I would go and sit with her and all her friends at this table. I'm walking with my other friends into the cafeteria. And I'm like, hey, y'all, let's go sit with my other friends over at this table. 
And they were like, nah, Skip. I was like, what do you mean? Because my name was Skippy, by the way. My <laughs> name was Skippy. We always bring up, they have nicknames. They said, that's the light-skinned table. You can go sit over there, but we can't. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? I mean, this is 1989, <laughs> 1990. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a sign that said, I'm from here. I'm just black. I had no idea that there was variations of color. But then I look after they brought that up. I'm like, guys, that's so stupid. Mm-hmm. And but I looked at the table and I and I hadn't realized it. It was all very light complected African Americans sitting <laughs> at that table, and 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 no one else. I called my parents and like did. Why didn't you like, tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Like, because <laughs> I didn't know. Pigmentocracy is real, it right? It blew my mind. Yeah. They, they, no one would, would have gotten beat up from sitting at that table, but it was just like an unwritten rule that they thought that they were not good enough to sit at that table. Hmm. And again, it's so historical because have you heard of the Blue Vein Society? No. <laughs> but I but I know what that that means you could they must be so light you can see you can their see. blue bag. <laughs> right. Oh my god. Well, that really was. I mean, this was like uh post like reconstruction, post-reconstruction, but this notion of very fair-skinned people, like first of all, just think about access to resources. Who gets the resources? They are they aren't in it down there at the bottom of that pole, right? That this notion that if we maintain our complexion maybe one day we will be absorbed into the white race. And then we will have, you know, the access to the, you know, resources and all of that, which is why in in, in, in so many families, it was like, you know, marry someone that's the same complexion. Don't bring home a really dark-skinned person. Wow. Again, anti-Black racism is something that infects all of us. Of course, though, when people bring up, well, you know, more black people or whatever, you know, voted for Trump and all that. It's like not 70 million. We didn't put him oh, there. No, the no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't put him there the first time or the second time. No, and people have different not. ways of people right. have different ways of of responding to oppression. And True. some is like, you know, yeah. I'm gonna be raceless or I'm gonna act like them and maybe I'll be treated like one of them. And you know, mm-hmm. you could do that on any sort of uh social marker. It's what, Maureen, what you were saying at the very beginning when you were talking about that even if people aren't white, they they have to figure out how to be white. Yeah. So hair texture, skin color, or so those things can become markers of status. Another Skip, Skip Gates, wrote something several years ago about who are the, quote, niggas in each culture. So like in American mm-hmm. culture, it's African-Americans, but if you go to France, it may be people uh, from Senegal mm-hmm. or people whom they've colonized. Or if you go to the UK, you know, like an African-American can go to France. I mean, a lot of people did, right? You know, the writers, the artists said, this is where I feel most free because they were African-Americans. They'd never been colonized by the French. But if uh, you are, say, a West Indian in the UK, then you can sort of expect uh, the same treatment or the same kind of anti-Black racism that African-Americans would experience here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if you come over from continental Africa, you what you might notice sometimes is like people will learn 
just like somebody from Ireland will learn is the last place you want to be associated with is African-Americans. Going back to this other, we're talking about the other generation, this newer generation, though. Do you think that there is a sense of authenticity that's different in the sense that you had people, they crossed over. They they changed the way that they, they Disney-fied themselves to cross over, whereas you have a Beyonce or a Jay-Z or even a crazy Kanye West who have stayed authentic, not changed up their music much, and they still openly identify as being African-American, and yet they've crossed over. And I'm wondering if you see more and more, if this generation looks at stuff like that, because my, my I think my 19-year-old is like that. They feel like they can be authentic and still become successful in a different way than I think we did before. Yeah, I don't know if you're I, seeing that, but... I don't know. That's what I want to learn. You know, I get to see students most often by the time they get to graduate school. And when they've gotten to graduate school, most of them have had those experiences like, wait, I didn't know this was going to happen to me. Like the social strategies have changed so much that sometimes it takes a little bit longer uh, before people will actually experience the full brunt of anti-Black racism in this country. I think eventually people will run into it. I don't know. But that's the kind of thing, like I said, if I were to do something else, one of the things I'm interested in now is talking to people about what they're actually experiencing when they're working at these huge consulting firms and they have these six-figure uh, incomes. And yet, like Barack Obama, you can be the leader of the free world, but they'll tell you, you know, we still get to say who, you know, how much power you get and what you get, what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's an open question. And as, as long as it is difficult to name, you know, what they're experiencing, I think the, the challenges will still be there. I think it's the naming it. Like if we're going to like pull a bottom line out of this, like being able to name it as racism and not as law yeah. and order or patriotism or, or empathy or mm -hmm. like any of these things. Or unity, you know, <laughs> unity. Or unity, okay, yeah. Let's move, let's move on move now. On. It's like, yeah. no, let's, where are we before mm -hmm. we can move? All right. So speaking of naming, who are we and why are we here? <laughs> we'll do that. Let Maureen go so she can get ready. We, you don't want to just say, and, and, Maureen, and Maureen is here too? <laughs> with special, with, with special guest, guest Dr. Maureen Walker. Welcome to My Racist Friend, a podcast about the messy parts of relationship that helps us grow together. I'm Amy McKees. I'm Don Griffin. Yeah, we did it. Hey. Oh my God. Thank you, Maureen. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. See you. This episode of My Racist Friend is a production of the Bloomington Center for Connection, an organization using relational cultural theory to promote social change through connection. This conversation between Don Griffin Jr., Amy McKeese, LCSW, and Dr. Maureen Walker took place in separate locations in Indiana and Massachusetts on Tuesday, November 17, 2020, and was edited for this podcast by Kevin McKeese. Theme music, lovingly sampled from Your Racist Friend by They Might Be Giants. Follow the Bloomington Center for Connection on Facebook and other social media platforms. You and your
I mean, the virtual ones, like I wander off. Oh, okay. It's it's okay. the Zoom. Zoom sucks. I mean, it just it, it just it's not. It, I, I mean, it's I'm so over it, really. But I like I like doing it with y'all. <laughs> okay. Okay, I mean, you have to say that now. Present yeah. company excluded. Yeah, course, no, I love right? this. I love this Brady Bunch thing we got going here. 